Welcome to Michigan Opera Theater's Opera Here podcast. This is Andrea Scobie and Arthur White with Michigan Opera Theater. We are thrilled you have joined us today as we preview Mozart's masterpiece, Don Giovanni. OperaBase.com, which tracks worldwide performances of opera, lists Don Giovanni as the ninth most frequently performed opera in the world today. Michigan Opera Theater's production of Mozart's Don Giovanni opens October 19th and runs through October 27th at the Detroit Opera House. In today's podcast, we'll tell you the story of Don Giovanni, give you a bit about its history, and we'll be joined by one of the principal artists in our upcoming stage production. But before we begin, we want to take this moment to thank Jake Neer and WDET for their assistance in producing our Opera Here podcasts. So, Arthur, tell us the story of this opera. Okay, so when the opera opens, there is this dramatic, thunderous, and ominous D minor cadence, which we will later hear when the commendatory comes back in the last act. Now, when the curtain goes up, we first meet Leporello. He is Don Giovanni's manservant, who is sort of keeping watch as Don Giovanni attempts to seduce the commendatore's daughter. Her name is Donna Anna. Before we know it, uh, Don Giovanni now appears, and uh, he has a mask on, uh, and he's being pursued by Donna Anna, who is trying to unmask him as she shouts for help. The next thing we know, her father, the Commendatore, now appears with sword drawn and challenges Don Giovanni to a duel. Now, uh, Don Giovanni doesn't want to fight the old man, but uh, he has blocked Don Giovanni's pathway to exit, and so he's forced to fight, and he ends up killing the Commendatore as he and Leporello quickly flee. Now, as the duel began, Donna Anna ran off to ask for help. Um, after Leporello and Don Giovanni flee, Donna Anna comes back in. She returns, this time with her fiancé, Don Ottavio, and the two uh, stumble upon her father's dead body. They are horrified. And Ottavio swears to avenge the commendatory's death as the scene closes. Now, the following morning, Giovanni and Leporello encounter Donna Elvira. Now, Don Giovanni knows Elvira very well because he had seduced her, promised to marry her, and then betrayed her. So as soon as he sees her, uh, he quickly and quietly slips away. Uh, But this leaves her with uh, Leporello, who tells her uh, to not cry over this guy. He's not worth... Uh, her time. He's always, you know, seducing women with his charming demeanor. Uh, And he shows her his catalog of over 2,000 names of women Giovanni has seduced, 1,003 just in Spain alone. Now, after Leporello's catalog, Aria, uh, Elvira leaves vowing vengeance. 
Now Giovanni and Leporello happen onto the marriage procession of a young, happy peasant couple named Mazzetto and Zerlina. Now Don Giovanni takes one look at Zerlina and he is instantly attracted, and so he sort of removes Mazzetto by promising to offer to host their wedding celebration at his castle. Uh, so now that he's alone with Zerlina, uh, he begins his seductive arts in their duet, La Cidadem La Mano, There We Will Entwine Our Hands. However, before they can leave, before they can go uh, back to the castle or anywhere else, Donna Elvira now arrives and she thwarts the seduction, the seduction in process, with her fiery aria, Flee from the Traitor, and she leaves with Zerlina. Don Ottavio and Donna Anna now arrive to meet with Don Giovanni, and they're hoping he can assist them in finding her father's killer. Giovanni is thrilled that Donna Anna does not suspect him, and he offers her his full support. But as he goes to leave, Donna Anna suddenly recognizes his voice and demeanor as the murderer, and Anna and Ottavio plot their revenge. Giovanni now turns his attention to the wedding party that he has promised to host at his castle. Uh, and he looks forward to an evening of drinking and dancing in his aria, Fin Candalvino Calda la Testa, till they are all tipsy. <laughs> Donna Anna, Don Ottavio, Don Elvira arrive at the party in disguise and they confront Giovanni as the murderous villain. Now he is momentarily surprised by this, uh, but he quietly slips away as the Act One curtain falls. When the second act opens, Giovanni intends to seduce Donna Elvira's maid, and so he steps beneath her balcony and sings his beautiful cavatina serenade De Vieni alla Finestra, Come to the Window. Now, the maid is receptive to his charms, but the seduction is cut short when Mazzetto arrives. So they're all looking for Don Giovanni. Mm -hmm. And so Don Giovanni decides, I'll exchange clothes with my servant. He's telling it so he can seduce the maid. The maid. But the real reason is everyone's looking for Don Giovanni, and it's better for him to be dressed in Leporello's clothes. Right. So now everybody's out for Giovanni and Leporello. Well, they're out for both of them, but they're, they're really out they're for They're really Don out Gio for Giovanni, yeah, but Leporello's right. been dressed in his clothes. So that's he's right. hiding as well. They're hiding from their accusers. Um, Giovanni and Leporello now meet up in a cemetery, and they encounter the statue of the Commendatore. Uh, the statue comes to life in this moment and interrupts their conversation, warning Giovanni that by morning he will no longer be laughing. Giovanni forces the terrified Leporello to invite the statue to dinner, and the statue accepts. Now, in the next scene, we are Don Giovanni's luxurious home where he is enjoying a scrumptious meal and some very fine music. Now, there's an ominous knock at the door. Uh, Giovanni opens it, revealing the statue, who has appeared as promised. Now, with the rhythmic chords of the overture, now reharmonized with diabolic diminished sevenths, the statue offers Giovanni one last chance to repent, but Giovanni adamantly refuses. 
The statue disappears, and Don Giovanni cries out in pain and terror as he is surrounded by a chorus of demons who drag him down to hell. Leporello, watching from under the table, also cries out in fear. Now, in the final scene, the epilogue, Donna Anna, Don Ottavio, Donna Elvira, Zerlina, and Mazzetto arrive to sing the concluding ensemble, which delivers the moral of the opera. Such is the end of the evildoer, the death of a sinner always reflects his life as the opera ends. It's his fiery comeuppance there at the end, doesn't he? Arthur? He does. You reap what you sow, as my uh, grandmother used to always say to me. Absolutely. <laughs> and I have to say, um, I I just love that the statue comes to life. I think it's so unexpected. It's this great moment of the supernatural. Um, is that a unique moment to this opera? Do we see that supernatural in other operas? or Not quite. You know, I think what makes this particular opera unique is the fact that it is so dramatic. It has that very serious, you know, the dragon down the hell and the demons. This is serious business. So to have this seriousness with this sort of comedic part and the supernatural makes it very unusual. That might be one of the reasons, of course, uh, why we are still doing this piece today. Well, one of many reasons. Of course, there's great tunes uh, as well, and it just makes a great story. Definitely. And it's a story that um, has been around for such a long time, even though Mozart's Don Giovanni is, you know, the story that many of us know as being the Don Juan story. Of course, the Don Juan story existed for hundreds of years before Mozart. Um, the first written version was a play published in 1630 in Spain by Tirso de Molina. Tirso was a disciple of the great Spanish playwright Lope de Vega, and he was very pro. Uh, it's said that he wrote 400 plays, although only about 80 have survived to this day. Um, and one of them, of course, was his famous Don Juan play, which translated into English was titled The Trickster of Seville and the Stone Guest. Um, and this play portrayed Don Juan as an evil man who used his aptitude for disguise to lure and seduce women. In the time the play was produced, it would have been clearly understood by the audience that this character was evil uh, because the devil was known as a shapeshifter, taking on various forms to lead people to sin. So in this original play, Don Juan was, you know, kind of clearly um, associated with the devil in that way. Tirso de Molina, which was a pen name for Gabriel Tellez, was not only a playwright, he was a priest. And so his Don Juan story had a clear moral and theological theme, making the case that some sins were unforgivable. And this went against a popular thought at the time, which went that no matter what a person had done in their life, so long as they made an act of contrition before their death, they would be forgiven of sin and enter heaven. Tirzo's play then became something of a cautionary tale. Many writers over the years have tried their hand at the Don Juan story, including Moliere, Lord Byron, and Jose Zoria, whose play Don Juan Tenorio is still performed in Mexico and Spain as part of the Dio de los Muertos celebrations and All Souls Day celebrations. Other Don Juan stories appeared on stage after its theatrical inception, including a ballet with music composed by Gluck and based on Moliere's play, and two operas, one based very closely on the Tears of De Molina play, but none have come close to the popularity of Mozart's Don Giovanni. Arthur, can you tell us a bit about Mozart for anyone out there who may not be familiar? Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is considered the most important opera composer of the classical period. He was 
Born in Salzburg in 1756, he was a child prodigy who played the keyboard and violin by age four. Uh, he composed by age five, and he wrote 22 operas, half of them while he was still a teenager. And in 1781, at the age of 25, he decided he would leave and move to Vienna to gain the ear and patronage of Emperor Joseph II, which he did. Uh, he was considered the finest keyboard player in Vienna and is credited with over 600 works in his short life of 35 years. Now, the commission of the opera in Prague in 1787 came about uh, because of the marriage of Figaro. It had first been performed there in December of 1786, and it was considered the greatest operatic success ever witnessed in Prague uh, and led to Mozart's invitation to set the Don Juan story to music. Uh, the opera was enthusiastically received and led to the Vienna debut, which took place the following year. Now, Mozart, of course, had a key collaborator in this work, right, Arthur? We can't forget. Uh, Lorenzo de Ponte was the librettist who would help bring Don Giovanni to life. Uh, de Ponte was born in Italy. He was Jewish by birth, but his father, a widower, converted the family to Roman Catholicism in order to marry a Catholic woman. De Ponte was educated in the seminary. He was ordained as a priest by the age of 24, uh, and he also became a professor of literature and began writing poetry. While in the priesthood, de Ponte took a mistress with whom he had two children uh, and was later put on trial in 1779 for public concubinage and abduction of a respectable woman. Sounds like our Don Giovanni, right? Mm. Um, he was found guilty and he was banished from Venice for 15 years. After that, he went first to Dresden and then to Vienna. A friend had given him a letter of introduction to the composer Antonio Salieri, um, who was the composer and music director for the court of Emperor Joseph II. So it was there, through his association with Salieri, um, that the emperor appointed de Ponte to the post of theater poet or librettist, and it was there that de Ponte met Mozart. And they collaborated in three of the most well-known operas in the canon, The Marriage of Figaro, Cosi Van Tutte, and of course, Don Giovanni. After the death of Emperor Joseph II, de Ponte was dismissed from his position in the court and banished due to his political leanings. He traveled to London for a time, but fleeing debt and bankruptcy, he and his wife journeyed to the United States and settled in New York City. Very late in his life, at the age of 84, de Ponte founded the New York Opera Company, which was the predecessor of the New York Academy of Music and the New York Metropolitan Opera. And during his years in New York, de Ponte really worked to bring opera to American audiences, including a performance of Don Giovanni in 1825. And uh, through a concert tour with his niece, he introduced Rossini's music to American audiences. So we really have de Ponte to thank not only for uh, Don Giovanni, but also potentially for the spread of Italian opera in America. And certainly, you know, when I think of Don Giovanni, I think of my first performance of that I saw back when I was in high school, uh, back in Chicago, Lyric Rapper Chicago mounted a lavish production. I've been a big fan of it ever since. You know, there are two, or I should say I have two favorite musical moments in the opera. The first uh, occurs in the party scene at the end of Act One. Now, Mozart calls for three separate musical dances to be performed simultaneously, but all of them are in different meters. So the pit orchestra plays a minuet in 3-4, uh, one stage band plays a contra dance in 2-4, and the second stage band plays a peasant dance in a fast 3-8. Now, as if that weren't complicated enough, Mozart assigns the vocal writing in the same way. So Leporello sings in 3-4 with the minuet, Don Giovanni sings in 2-4 with the contra dance, and Mazzetto sings in the fast 3-8, the peasant dance. And all of this in one perfect synchronized harmony. Yeah, 
My other favorite moment uh, occurs at the end of the opera when Leporello is serving dinner uh, to Don Giovanni. There are onstage musicians performing uh, popular music of the day, and they include in the opera Mozart's Don Piondrai from The Marriage of Figaro, which had just premiered uh, there in Prague just a few months earlier. Uh, and so Leporello comments that he is sick and tired of hearing this tune, Figaro's tune, uh, and it's kind of just adds to the fun and the amusement of Mozart really kind of poking fun at himself at this moment. that and i'm sure in the day that was a huge a huge comedic moment oh i'm it certainly was it's still a comedic uh, <laughs> yeah definitely funny funny moment for sure we are joined by soprano nicole cabell who portrays donna elvira in this production she is the winner of the bbc singer of the world competition in cardiff she is certainly no stranger to mot audiences she has appeared as uh, violetta in la traviata and Musetta and Mimi in La Boheme, and we are thrilled she is here. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks for being here today. It's my pleasure. Now, I'm a Chicagoan, and so I first became aware of you and your artistry uh, when you were a young artist at the Lyric Center there in Chicago at Lyric Opera. Can you tell us uh, or tell our listeners a bit about your beginnings and your training? Sure. Oh, wow, that seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> That's uh, it's now called the Ryan Opera Center. At the time, it was the Lyric Opera Center uh, for American Artists. And uh, I attended that program in 2002. I was there for three years. Um, it was fantastic, really kind of launched me into, well, it gave me all the skills that I really needed for a professional career, and it helped launch me into um, my subsequent uh, career. Prior to that, um, I went to the Eastman School of Music, uh, got my, um, my Bachelor of Music and Vocal Performance there. And uh, like every uh, like every performer at uh, Eastman, I was involved in choirs and musicals uh, before that, and had a wonderful voice teacher in Ventura, California. So it was a very um, sort of fluid uh, path that I took, and I, I have to say I was pretty lucky. It's not it's very competitive to get into um, those apprentice programs with the big opera houses. So I was very um, prepared and lucky, and uh, after that, the competition uh, in Cardiff was 2005, so that happened right after I graduated from the program, and again, very smooth transition, and that that really kicked it off, right? It kicked off my career, and I I haven't stopped since, so (laughs) very grateful. Now, Nicole, you've, in addition to doing Elvira here in Detroit, you've done other great Mozart roles in your career. You've done Pamina and Magic Flute and The Countess and The Marriage of Vigoro. How does Elvira stack up with all these other roles? You know, Elvira is one of these roles that is not necessarily a vocal showcase. It's it's more of a character role, an acting role. She has um, a wonderful aria, Mitradi, that is very famous, and it, it, it shows a technical skill that's more akin to something like a violin player, some, an instrumentalist, um, lots of chromatic scales, and um, not a lot of vocal pyrotechnics, if you will. No, no big high notes, uh, nothing sort of um, to showcase um, a diva character that, that Donna Anna is, for instance. She has two big... Um, Arias, Don Anna is the other female character in Don Giovanni, and her, her arias are, are written to showcase the voice in a way that's more um, pointed than Elvira. So my character, it's, it's, it's about um, portraying um, the character above all, and in that way she is definitely a, a bit of a departure from some of the other uh, characters that I've portrayed, particularly the Countess and Pamina, and, and roles that that 
I have to really get my voice in pristine shape. Elvira is um, demented. She is uh, she's on a mission, and that is what the audience needs to to um, gain from from my interpretation. Hopefully, I will do a good job at that. But that's the idea with her character. You certainly do. You always do yes. in uh, Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> now, Nicole, you've performed the role of Don Elvira a number of times. Um, can you talk mm-hmm. about if or how that experience has changed over the years, uh, particularly as the cultural climate has shifted? Hmm. It's a great question, actually. Um, so Elvira is a scorned woman. She is one of the characters in, in Don Giovanni that he um, loves and leaves, but she is not going to take it. So she, she uh, throughout the whole opera, is on a mission to find him, to get him to repent, and to eventually uh, re- reignite the romance. Um, now, some interpretations have it um, that she is pregnant or that she is um, has born a child by him, and therefore she's she's seeking to legitimize her her uh, her child, or she doesn't want to have a child out of wedlock, and so that kind of increases her motivation. So she's yeah, this is this is uh, interesting in today's climate, of course, because we are women are encouraged to be more empowered. So the, the sort of act of being aggressive about trying to, to show him his, his errors and his evil ways, this is a, a bit more acceptable now. Um, she, she would have been considered a bit over the top, I think, in, in times past. Um, maybe required to be more ladylike, uh, you know, these, these sort of antiquated ideas of, of how a woman should behave. And she's not written that way. And I think we're in a climate now where she can actually be more, you can empathize with her more because um, she is empowered and she is, up until the very end of the opera, it remains empowered. Now, the director, John Pascal, who will be directing this production, uh, recently had said he wanted to highlight the female perspective in this opera, you know, a piece which is normally seen through the eyes of Don Giovanni. Do you think that we're going to see us looking back at these 18th century pieces and reinterpreting them? Well, I think the both of well, three of the female characters are actually written rather sympathetically and very strong. They're very strong characters. So I, I think it can be seen often just because of, you know, Don Giovanni is the title character, and it's um, he doesn't actually have a, a character arc. He doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't change. Um, so, you know, one might think that the story is kind of based on him and his perspective, but I think it's always been an opera that... Um, focuses a lot on the experience of, of the women. And Don Ottavio, also the other male character, Mazetto, these male characters, they don't, they don't, you don't see a lot of change in them, but, but you do for, for the women. So I think that it's always been focused on that. Whether or not our director decides to highlight it in a way that is even more obvious remains to be seen. But I think that the beautiful thing about how this opera is written is you can't sort of ignore the strong stories of these women. I think you will you will have a very strong impression, um, just simply because of the, the the amazing writing story that this is. Um, I'm very excited to to see how in this climate, in today's climate, how how the blocking, right, the staging, the stagecraft will be affected. Because I think that is that is potentially a more changeable thing, right? You oftentimes women are these female characters are very 
they're victimized on stage. And you have to show that he, that Don Giovanni is, uh, he's a bad guy. So he, 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 he freely victimizes these women. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if, if this can be achieved in a way that's not gratuitous. I, I actually don't know. I have no idea how, how it's going to be, how, they're going, how he's going to do this. So we'll see. Right. Yeah, we look forward to seeing it. Um, you're so right, Nicole, when you say that Don Giovanni is a character that doesn't change, right? He doesn't have this arc. Um, but Don, Dona Elvira does come to a different conclusion at the end of the opera than at mm-hmm. the beginning, right? She says she, um, you know, she is no longer angry. She doesn't carry angry anger. She carries this pity for him. Um, do you see that as any kind of forgiveness? I mean, what brings about this change for her, do you think? So I'm not, I'm not exactly sure that Dona Elvira has a change from anger to pity, to be honest. I think she says that she has, she will find in her heart this pity to, to that, that, is, that is stronger than her, her anger, which enables her to try to save him one more time. That's really what it is. And, and halfway through um, the very last scene she has with him, she, when she's trying to save him, I give you one more chance to repent. She does feel pity for him at this moment. Um, she, he, he is just, incredibly cruel and she's she says okay this is all right i thought i would give you another chance but you've proven to be beyond repent and um so she kind of she kind of is angry and she gives up Mm. so i would say that she doesn't necessarily leave with oh well you know this 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 heartfelt pity for him it's rather she's scorned one one more time and and she's she's kind of saying oh well you know this is this is the last chance that um he had and he lost it and that's that she she really does give up completely mm. at that moment but um i don't think that she holds the torch for him at, at any at any further point or thinks upon him with pity uh, once he scorns her that one last time it's only right before she, she tries to save him again that she feels this um potential oh maybe he's maybe he's just a tortured soul and i can save him one more time Nicole, you do a good deal of concert and recital work. As a matter of fact, you have a, a, Mahler's, a Mahler's Second Resurrection Symphony uh, coming up in Tokyo later this year. And I'm wondering, uh, are there different requirements to do these different disciplines, you know, going between opera and concert work? Opera and concert work, it's very different, actually. It's, it's the rehearsal process for opera is so long and it's so involved that you do have a chance to dig into the music in a way that could potentially be deeper. Um, of course, it's up to us as singers to find the time to to really to coach and research as much as we can for concert repertoire because you don't have a lot of rehearsal and you're often kind of thrust into the rehearsal and the performance very fast. So, in that way, in, in terms of preparation, you don't you don't get as much time to get the music into your bones as as much as um opera but uh i don't know i really i personally love singing with orchestras and singing recital music for instance um song song repertoire for, for recitals um i love it because it is simple it's all about the music and you don't have any distraction uh with costuming and lighting and directing and um, coordination, we're ultimate people really multitaskers as singers. Um, so you don't have those distractions and you can just completely zone in on the music. Um, and that, that's a very special thing. I, I actually, I really love them both. I, I think from a personal standpoint, it's often easier to sing concert repertoire because you, you, 
you're not away from home for a month or more. But um, that's a sacrifice that we all willingly make for um, for the music in both respects. All right. Nicole, before we say goodbye, is there anything that we didn't ask about that's important to know about this character, this production, or anything that you want to share? I'm very excited to perform with Ellie Dean and Daniel Okulich, my um, Don Giovanni and my Donna Anna, respectively, and they are old friends of mine, colleagues. It's very, it's wonderful when you actually are doing a show with people you've performed before with. Um, so I think we'll have automatic chemistry. Um, and I've actually done this with um, Dan, uh, yes, Don Giovanni, before. So that's going to be very interesting to see what new perspective uh, we get with our new director. Well, Nicole Cabell, we are thrilled that you are coming to Detroit for this performance. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing you uh, at the Detroit Opera House. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, too, to everyone listening today to our glimpse into Don Giovanni. We hope we see you at the Detroit Opera House to catch this gorgeous production, opening October 19th and running through October 27th. Also, don't forget to mark your calendars for Saturday, October 13th, as Michigan Opera Theater officially opens its 49th season with celebrated tenor Michael Fabiano. Hailed by the New York Times as one of the most exciting, sought-after singers in the world, he will be joined by the Michigan Opera Theater Orchestra, conducted by Stephen Mercurio. The evening will include a special appearance by Lea Crocetto and Roderick Dixon, as well as the American Ballet Theater, performing a pas de deux from Swan Lake. To purchase tickets to Don Giovanni or to find more information on the opera or our 49th season gala, visit our website at michiganopera.org. You can also connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again to Jake Neer and WDET for their assistance in producing this podcast, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>